Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Hey everybody, welcome to Anchor Church again. So good to have you with us for part four of our current series called Finding Faith. Uh, this has been such a great conversation, such a great discussion. And these are questions, the ones that we're discussing in the series are questions that, that many have had conversations, discussions about, questions about, but perhaps haven't always had the platform or the forum to be able to discuss those things. And, uh, and we're so grateful that we get to have it with you. So if you have any questions or thoughts, you can go ahead and comment right now or send us an email, info at anchorjoburg.org. And we will have a Q&A session towards the end of the series where we will be able to encourage you. And uh, we've also got some exciting news that we've got Professor David Block that is going to be speaking in this series. Uh, he is a world-renowned astrophysicist, um, has done some groundbreaking work. Um, and so he was, he's part of the Royal Astronomical Society and uh, has been a fellow there since the age of 19 when his first paper on astrophysics was published. So that is coming up in two or three weeks time. Look out for the dates. It's going to be an awesome time with Professor David Block speaking. But today we're going to continue and we're going to look at, at the theory of evolution, how all things came about. And you know, the problem when you start working backwards is where do you stop? Where does the discussion end? Do you go backwards to, okay, men evolved from, let's say, apes. Okay, but when, what came before the apes and what came before them and what came before that? And all the way back, you've rewinded yourself to where science ultimately begins, which is that there was just a speck of matter in the universe that expanded to form all things. But nobody knows where the speck came from or where the universe it was floating in came from uh, or what that realm would be called outside of our known universe. So this becomes an interesting conversation. And my point is that if you were going to avoid the conversation, you would have to ignore the questions of meaning and purpose. I remember being at my high school reunion years ago and, and standing with some of the guys that were in school with me. And as we were conversing throughout the night, obviously, as the night grows longer, people become more emboldened in the questions that they ask. And knowing that I had become a pastor and that I was leading a church, some of the guys started to ask me some questions around my worldview. And at one point, one of my friends looked to me and, uh, and he just said, you know what? I think that as long as you love your girl, you work hard at your job and you generally do what's right, you just live a comfortable life. And that's really all there is to life, you know? And uh, I, I said to him, that's great if you don't ask any more questions. The problem with humanity, the problem with that kind of approach uh, for us as humans is that our questions never end there. Our questions always go further. Well, what happened before that? And in essence, if you were going to ask the question, is there meaning and purpose to life? The discussion of evolution actually becomes more and more relevant because if, it was, if everything just came about through natural means, then it means that there really isn't a general or an important or a significant purpose in life. Uh, life really doesn't have meaning. Having this conversation wouldn't have meaning. Uh, anything that we could argue wouldn't really have meaning. Um, and, and so it's all really futile. And so the theory of evolution 
is one that has actually led a lot of people to a form of despair because they cannot ask the question why or how. But once you start looking at the real reasons for how, then the why becomes more and more apparent or bec becomes a bigger big, and bigger question in the process. So most children today are raised with contradictory views because they'll go to school and they will learn about evolution and they'll learn about the Big Bang and they'll learn about these theories for origin and then they'll go to kids church perhaps or at home and hear about a God who created them. And one of these views is painted as scientific while the other one is called religion. How do we reconcile the two? Did we come about through random natural processes or by the supernatural act of God? And, uh, and, and how do we weigh those two up? Isn't evolution a proven fact anyways? I think our, many in our world would say, no, but evolution is fact. Is that true? Time magazine once said this about Charles Darwin, who was uh, the one who penned uh, one of the original hypotheses of evolution uh, in his book called The Origin of the Species and the Preservation of Superior Races Through Natural Selection, which is the full title of The Origin of the Species. And, um, and so Time Magazine spoke of Charles Darwin and they said he didn't want to murder God. Charles Darwin didn't want to murder God, as he once put it, but he did. In essence, what they're saying is that Charles Darwin's theory removes the necessity of an intelligent designer because we can simply look to evolution uh, for the, our answers uh, for how everything came about. So, so the objection that comes from this is that since evolution explains life, God isn't needed. We no longer need God in our worldview because we have evolution. But let's start the conversation about evolution today by looking at what it really is. Let's just make sure that we define evolution correctly. Evolution is defined as change in the inherent traits of popu a population of organisms through successive generations. So their inherent traits uh, just change and, and progress over time. When populations split into smaller groups, they, these then evolve independently and develop into a new species. That's the hypothesis put forward by Charles Darwin that these that then have been separated will become a brand new species of animal. Charles Darwin lived between 1809 and 1882. He was a British naturalist and geologist and uh, he traveled on the HMS Beagle do, as a naturalist doing studies on natural life uh, all over the world, specifically the Galapagos Islands. And it was in one of these occasions when he was at the islands of Galapagos that he, met, he noticed finches, which often referred to as Darwin's finches, and he noticed that there were 12 different variations of finches on this island. And his theory was that all of these 12 finches evolved from a, a common ancestor or a common finch ancestor, uh, which led to the, this variation. So Darwin pursued this theory. It was one that he started writing in those years and pursued it and wasn't ready to publish his book on the origin of the species until he had factual evidence. And he held off on this and spoke about it many times. He wanted more conclusive proof. But due to his ill health, uh, he was urged to publish in 1859. He revised his work several times after publishing, often having to concede certain weaknesses in his theory. And some of this 
has been accepted, but other parts like transmutation were rejected. Um, although adaptation is something that obviously was accepted. And so, and so here's a quote, if you've never read the book, because many will uh, be believe in it and say they believe in it, but then they've never read the book. Um, and so a quote from the intro of Origin of the Species in Charles Darwin's own words. He says, I can give here only the general conclusions at which I have arrived, with a few facts in illustration, but which I hope in most cases will suffice. No one can feel more sensible than I, I do of the necessity of here after publishing in detail all of the facts with references on which my conclusions have been grounded. And I hope in a future work to do this. For I am well aware that scarcely a single point is discussed in this volume on which facts cannot be adduced, often apparently leading to conclusions directly opposite to those which I have arrived. A fair result can be obtained only by fully stating and balancing the facts and arguments on both sides of each question, and this cannot possibly be done here. So some facts, he says, could have pointed to the opposite conclusion and actually needed some rigorous process and debate and critique and criticism and, and, and more study, further study to actually decide whether or not this hypothesis could hold water. That's a good approach to science and sadly a part of the process that many today forego in order to you know, go straight from the ivory tower to the masses and put their popular opinions out there even though they haven't been vetted because it will sell magazines or get them book deals. And so this is unfortunately what has happened in our world. But at the same time as this was being published uh, by Charles Darwin, there was a campaign by guys like T.H. Huxley and the X Club. The X Club were nine men who supported the theories of natural selection and academic liberalism who wanted to secularize science through scientific naturalism. They wanted to move it away from people like Galileo um, in, the, in, the, in the, you know, the more classic period of scientific discovery and they wanted to secularize it by removing the entity or the idea or the theory of a god or a, an intelligent designer. And so T.H. Huxley is actually the one who coined the term agnostic and was known as Darwin's bulldog. That was his nickname. He was unsure himself of many of Darwin's conclusions, yet he supported him. It's become, however, the accepted trend in modern biology and science and taught in all liberal educational systems, despite the fact that there still is no conclusive proof. In fact, major inferences have to be made in order for this theory to stand its ground. What is the reason, therefore, that it was so widely accepted and became so popular in our modern world? Well, quite simply, it's the best alternative explanation to intelligent design. Evolution ultimately is an enabler of atheism. Everyone knows that evolution is true to an extent in the form of microevolution, that's adaptations within species, which is well documented, well observed, and well understood. You'll, for example, have varieties of dogs coming from one common ancestor that was also itself a dog. That's scientifically proven. But what isn't proven is macroevolution. And this is the idea that all organisms, all natural life, developed from a single cell organism millions of years ago. So essentially, 
it is no longer science versus science, but faith versus faith. Dr. Michael Denton, a molecular biochemist, says evolutionary theory is still as it was in Darwin's time, a highly speculative hypothesis entirely without direct factual support and very far from the self-evident axiom some of its more aggressive advocates could have us or would have us believe. What are the three basic premises of evolution? When you look at evolution, what, what does it really uh, say? Because we often throw it around and we say, well, that explains everything, but we don't look at what it actually proposes. So the first one is spontaneous generation, which we did cover in week one to some extent. But the idea was the first living thing that evolved into everything else we have today that accounts for all the natural diversity that we have, where did it come from? They say it was a single cell organism that developed through mutation and the process of natural selection leading to all plant and animal life. How did that first single cell organism come about though? That's an important premise because evolution can only take place once you have some living matter to replicate and grow through mutation. Without that, you have nothing. The theory that is most popular around this is called chemical abiogenesis. And it was first developed by the Russian biochemist Alexander Oprin in 1924, when he hypothesized that ultraviolet light that was acting on the Earth's primitive atmosphere caused sugars and amino acids to concentrate in the oceans, ultimately creating this primordial broth from which life came forth. The problem is, is that back in the 18 and 19, early 1900s, single cell organisms were thought to be very basic, very simplistic organisms. A living organism, however, is far more complicated than anybody could ever have imagined. In fact, a living organism does three main things, whether it's uni or multicellular. The first thing it does is process energy. The second thing is store information. And the third thing it does is replicate. This is what separates animate from inanimate objects. One person very creatively but quite accurately described the function of a single cell organism and said the following. As a high-tech factory, complete with artificial languages, decoding systems, central memory banks that store and retrieve impressive amounts of information, precision control systems that regulate the automatic assembly of components, proofreading and quality control mechanisms that safeguard against errors, assembly systems that use principles of prefabrication and modular construction, and a complete replication system that allows the organism to duplicate itself at bewildering speeds. That's the job description of a single cell organism. It's incredibly complicated. It's something we still aren't able to produce in our, with all of our modern science. Michael Behe, the professor at Lehigh University and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture said the following, the probability of linking together just 100 amino acids to create one protein molecule by chance would be the same as a blindfolded man finding one marked of grain of sand somewhere in the vastness of the Saharan desert and doing it not just once, but three different times. The reason for this is because to produce one cell over 100 of exactly the right amino acids 
would have to align in exactly the right order, folding in a three-dimensional way to produce a single protein molecule. Then all you have is a protein molecule. You then need about 200 protein molecules to, uh, with just the right functions, all the different molecules with just the right functions, in just the right order to align themselves and connect themselves one more time in order to get a living cell. So it is incredibly complicated. 100 amino acids to produce one protein, 200 of those protein um, uh, molecules to align in just the right order with just the right functions to produce a single living cell. That's why this professor says it's like finding three different grains of sand in the Saharan desert while blindfolded. In living cells, the guidance for this complex arrangement is in our DNA uh, combined with our RNA. These are microprocessors that regulate, code, express genetic info, um, and your DNA is your DNA molecule molecule is in every single cell. It tells those amino acids how to arrange themselves. And so even if you could create the protein, where does the information, the writing, the code inside of the DNA molecule, where does that come from? Who wrote the code? Walter Bradley said, if the only time we see written information, whether it's a painting on a cave wall or a novel from amazon.com, is when there's an intelligence behind it, then wouldn't that also be true of nature itself? If you walked into a room and there was a painting hanging on the wall, you wouldn't think that that painting just came about through random chance, that the, the paint molecules just appeared and connected themselves to form the picture. You would say, if there's a painting, or if I'm reading a book, or if, I'm, if, I, if I see some, something written somewhere, we obviously conclude that somebody or some form of intelligence had written it. Why then, when we see the written information inside of the human DNA, do we conclude that it came about by random chance, rather than concluding that it came about through an intelligent designer? Intelligent design, therefore, is the only logical conclusion for the written code inside of our DNA. This left science at a stalemate. The optimism of the early 1950s is gone. They have nowhere to go except intelligent design. And so scientists are more and more willing to readily accept hypotheses that don't always make sense or make less sense as long as it means that they still don't have to admit that there is a God. In an interview with Ben Stein, Professor Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist and author, spoke about intelligent design when Ben Stein brought it up and said that there is an, a chance that life on Earth was seeded from some other planet, but that whatever intelligent life seeded uh, life onto this planet had to itself have evolved through evolutionary or Darwinian means. In other words, when faced with the evidence of intelligent design, the fingerprint of a designer in the genetic written code, they would first consider the possibility of life from another planet, some intelligent life, seeding life on earth before they consider the possibility of a creator. Carl Sagan said the receipt of a single message from space would be enough to know 
that there is intelligence out there. But by that reasoning, if a single message from space is enough to declare intelligence, and each cell in your body has roughly the same amount of info as all 30 volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica, and you have about 40 trillion cells in your body, then surely that is enough of a message to tell us that there is an intelligent designer. Where there is intelligent communication, there is an intelligent cause. This deals a deafening blow to evolution as a whole. The second premise of evolution is genetic mutation. If, for example, the theory goes, a flock of geese is migrating, and in the process of migrating, one of those geese gets separated. Over millions of years, what was a goose will no longer be a bird, but some other animal. One animal ultimately mutating into another. Now, mutations do occur, but the problem is that there is no recorded instance where the mutated result has been beneficial. The mutation results in a loss of DNA code. If evolution is about preservation and improvement, why has it never been able to produce new raw material? This was a question that was again put to Dr. Richard or Professor Richard Dawkins, and he was unable to give even one example where the, uh, the result of a mutation was able to lead to the increase of information in the genome. If there is no spontaneous generation, and we've never witnessed a beneficial mutation, we can begin to see why evolution is such a highly speculative theory. We could possibly still hold on to it as a theory if we just had some geological evidence. And that brings me to the third premise of evolution, which is the existence of intermediary fossils. In other words, fossil records that, that indicate the species evolving from one animal to another. Now we have lots of, of fossils of ancient animals like dinosaurs, and we have lots of fossils of modern animals, but we seem to have nothing in between, which is commonly known as the missing link. If the fossil records indicated intermediary samples, it's something that we could believe in. Charles Darwin himself said that this was a serious requirement. Here it is in his own words. Charles Darwin said, but just in proportion, as this process of extermination has acted on an enormous scale, so must the number of intermediary, intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on the earth be truly enormous. In other words, we should have mass amounts of them. Why then, he says, is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal such finely graduated organic chain. And this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. Charles Darwin himself said that unless we find a mass amount of these fossils, then the theory is debunked. Darwin hoped that in the future these fossils would be discovered. David Raup, however, the curator at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, said we are now about 120 years after Darwin and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. We now have a quarter of a million fossil species. 
But the situation hasn't changed much. We have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. So the missing link is still missing. In fact, what fossil records do indicate, those dating back to about 570 million years ago, if the dating is correct, is that there is a sudden appearance of nearly all animal phyla at that time. There's much more evidence of a creative act than there is of evolution. Psalm 33 verse 69 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came as he commanded and stood firm. Psalm 33 verse 13 to 15 says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out over all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them and observes all of their deeds. How beautiful. God is the great creator. The same God that created the heavens and the earth. The same God that fashioned the stars in the sky and brought the universe into being, including all that it encompasses, is the God that knit you together in your mother's womb. And the Bible says you are skillfully made. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And it is God who put you together in that way. He knows your name. He has numbered the amount of hairs on your head and he carries you. All things are held together in Jesus. In every cell of your body, there are protein molecules. And one of those molecules is called laminin. It's a cell adhesion molecule, literally the glue of your body. And that molecule is arranged in a certain structure. You can go and look it up after this message, the shape of that structure of that laminin. It is in the shape of a cross. And this is just such a beautiful picture of what we're seeing here, what the Bible tells us. Colossians 1 says that by him, all things that are made were made. They were created in Him, by Him, and through Him. And they are held together by the word of His power. All of heaven and earth is held together in Jesus. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And the Bible tells us that when we were separated from this God, by our disbelief, by our rebellion, by our running in the opposite direction, He did not abandon His creation, but loved us so much that He sent His Son to reconcile us with our Creator, to bring us back to God so that we can know Him. Through Christ, we have been forgiven. Through Christ, He has made peace by His blood on the cross. And that means that today, you can know your Creator. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. You didn't come about by just a series of random events. You have meaning, you have purpose, and you have value because God created you with all of those things inherent in who you are. It's because of His love that He created you to know Him. And when we were lost, He brought you back. And so you can come home today to this God. You can know Him personally in your own life 
you can commune with him and have that relationship. And it simply begins by taking a step of faith. There is enough evidence for us. If you're a, if you're a cynic, if you're, if you're somebody who's critical of the evidence, there is enough evidence to allow you, to bring you to the point where you can take a step of faith. And you can do that today by simply praying a prayer to invite God into your life, to experience Him personally. Let's go ahead. If you want to pray that prayer, let's pray it right now together. Just say these words after me, just some simple words, just a short prayer. Say, Lord God, I believe that you created all things and you created me, that you created me with purpose, that you created me to know you and to be able to have a relationship with you. God, I make a decision today to trust in you, to put my faith in you. I believe in your son that was sent to die on the cross on my behalf. And as I put my trust in him today, I believe that I am forgiven, that I am made new, and that I can experience your love. I give you all of the glory for this, God, my creator and my savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, let us know. That's an exciting moment in your life. You were created and now you've been recreated. You're a new creation in Christ. What a beautiful moment and we are so excited. We want to celebrate with you. Let us know if you prayed that prayer. Well, thank you for joining us again today as we looked at the theory of evolution. Next week, we're going to look at the nature of God. What is He like and how do we answer the questions about God in the Bible and some of the things that went down uh, so join us. It's going to be an awesome one. Invite some people to, to watch with you. Let's go on the journey together. Thank you, everybody. We love you. We're praying for you. And we'll see you again next Sunday.